Good morning. Welcome to our services today. It's certainly a blessing and a privilege for you to be here. And we're especially glad to have you if you're a visitor. And we pray that you will stick around and let us get to know you a little better and that you will spend some time here and we pray that we would see you more often. The subject for this morning is a man that probably most of you don't know, or at least you may know the name. You don't know a lot about the man. Uh, Brent mentioned him a couple of times in his presentation about Esther uh, when we were going through our study of women in the Bible. This man's name is Mordecai. Mordecai was kind of an ordinary guy, nothing special about him. You're not going to find him written up in Hebrews 11 under the list of all the great people of faith. But he was nevertheless very instrumental in his day in preserving God's people. Give you a little background on Mordecai. We find he is first mentioned in both Ezra and Nehemiah as they recount the Jews that came out of bondage when King Cyrus of Persia released them. Jerubbabel brought out all the Jews that wanted to go. Now in looking at the lineup of both of these different prophets and these authors and how they listed the people, we see that Ezra listed the folks that came out by cities and their city affiliations. Nehemiah listed them by families. However, both these men listed 12 individuals right after they talk about Zerubbabel, and I know I'm probably mispronouncing that name. Mordecai is one of those individuals. We see that in Ezra 2 and 2 and in Nehemiah 7 and 7. A couple of things we can conclude from this. Uh, Mordecai is not a Hebrew, Hebrew name, a Jewish name. Mordecai is a Persian name. Now you might ask why in the world would his parents name him as a Persian. Well, the Jews were a very discriminated and persecuted group of people in the Persian Empire. And to limit the amount of persecution or problems that they would experience, many Jewish families gave their sons Persian names. Mordecai means learned of tongues, the Persian vernacular. But he was one of the Jews that came out of Persia and went to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple. Now, we talk about Esther. Obviously, Mordecai's parents were probably already deceased at this time, or his father would have been named probably instead of him. But Mordecai's aunt and uncle 
evidently made that journey back to Jerusalem. And sometime while they were there, in the period of time that they were working on reconstructing the walls around Jerusalem and the temple and the city, evidently they died. They had a daughter named Hadassah, which we will come to know as the queen of Persia, eventually, Esther. How can we conclude this? Well, it took 10, maybe as many as 20 years before we reached the situation where Esther was taken back. She had to qualify as a fair young virgin to be considered to go back to Shushan, the palace of the Persian Empire, which by that time was Xerxes. When he came to power, first thing he did was collect his army of a million men. Can you imagine a million man army? He took that army and he marched east all the way through India. And India was not what we see defined today on the map, but yet it was the territory east of Iraq and encompassed all of that area going eastward from India, Pakistan, uh, all the way through Thailand, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. He did not conquer China. And then he went the other direction, and he conquered Africa, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. He went up the Baltics and conquered the Greek Isles and all of those countries there. And of course, there's a big story that I'm sure you've all heard. Maybe you've seen the movie about the 300 Spartans that stood in opposition to Xerxes' army. They stood and held them off for several days before they were finally all killed. That's been made into a movie multiple times. But now Xerxes has solidified his kingdom. It is composed of 127 provinces or countries. There are several nobles in his, for lack of a better term, I'll say cabinet, listed among the leaders of his empire that are named Mordecai. Mordecai is a common name. As I said, it means learned of tongues, which means he was a highly educated man. He is a person that before he left Shushan, the palace under King Cyrus to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it, he was already known and had a good reputation there, not as a Jew, but as a Persian. While they're constructing the wall, and of course we know that story and I'm not going to try to go into it all because I don't have the time, but it took a long time to build the wall and start on the temple. Years. 10, 20 years passed, probably maybe more than that. During that time, Hadessa is born to her parents who are Mordecai's aunt and uncle. 
and now they are deceased. And Mordecai has taken her to raise her as his child. Things going on back in Shushan were after he had conquered, after Xerxes had conquered all the known world, and he had it all solidified and stabilized and everything's going his way, he brings in all of those leaders from all of those different countries and he throws a big party. This party lasts for six months. Can you imagine going to a party that lasts six months? I, I can't imagine that, but that's what he did. I'm sure there was lots of alcohol and uh, you know, there was a lot of things going on. Well, toward the end of that six months, the old king decides that he has the most beautiful queen in the whole world and he wants to show her off to all his cabinet, his leaders, his troops, what, all the people that are there. So he commands that she come down and show herself to his nobles. Well, maybe unbeknown to him or known to him, I don't know which, uh, Vasti is her name, and she's throwing her own party for all of the women that had accompanied all these men to the palace complex, and they've been there six months, and she's got her own party going, and she refuses the king's command to come down and show herself to all of his drunken subordinates. The end result of that is she is banished from the capital, she ends up being banished from the country and she is no longer queen. Now, that leaves the king without a queen. So it's determined that the way he's going to find his new queen is he will send embassies to every one of these 127 provinces throughout the world and they will select out of that province the most beautiful fair young virgin to bring back to Shushan where they will spend a year, maybe as much as two years, making sure they are perfect, teaching them all the intricacies of the royal household, making sure they're ready and qualified to be a king. But now you've got all these 127, maybe more than that, women there young women that the king has to pick one of them to be the queen and the way he goes about doing that he brings each one of them in one at a time and they spend a day or two or three or whatever with the king and then he at the end of that time if they're not queen material he sends them to another palatius complex in his vast palace where they will now reside with the concubines of the king for the rest of their lives. It comes Esther's time to go in to the king. And he's smitten by Esther. At the end of the hunt, he has chosen Esther to be his queen. She has dropped the name Hadessa, which was a Jewish name, because Mordecai told her he followed them once they picked Esther out in Judea and took her back to the palace. He followed along. I'm sure it was a large entourage of people that went. He followed along and he told her that she's Esther now. She's not Hadassah. And she is to let nobody know that she is a Jew. She honored that request. 
And even though she's now chosen as queen, she still has told nobody that she is a Jew. Mordecai has told nobody that he's a Jew at this point in his life. And they are now, she's queen. Mordecai is now employed or working there in the palace complex. He's doing whatever it was he does, but he is there every day to keep an eye on Esther and to encourage her. It's not like he could walk into her house or walk into the palace where she was, but he could keep, keep in touch, communicate with her aides, her servants, and keep an eye on her to help her make good decisions and to do the right thing. We read about that in Esther 2 and 7, where Mordecai told her, no, you're not to tell anybody that you're a Jew. Well, as time goes on, Mordecai becomes aware of a plot to kill or assassinate the king. This is in Esther 2, about 21 and 22. He finds out about this plot and he tells Esther about it, who of course in turn tells the king. He's investigated the men there in the palace that were gonna try to carry out this coup or discovered they are finally executed. And this results in Mordecai being written up in the chronicles and history of the Persian Empire. This was a big deal. It, he had saved the king from assassination. So now he's written up in the annals and the history of the Persians. A couple of years after this, a man that is a sworn enemy of the Jews, a man named Haman, he is an Amalekite. And I'll give you a little history on that if you may have forgotten. The Amalekites were one of the races of people that Joshua was told to utterly and totally destroy when he brought the Jews across the River Jordan. But we know that he didn't do that. He and his armies got tired of annihilating all these people and they stopped. And the Amalekites survived. Now Haman, who is an Amalekite, is now second in charge of the Persian Empire. The only one with more authority than Haman was the king himself. And of course he has let all this go to his head. This is getting him right where he wants to be. He's second in line to the king. He's gonna be running the show. And with the king's approval, the edict comes down that all people will bow down and prostrate themselves before Haman when he appears. They're to prostrate themselves and give him reverence and honor. So this starts out, but Mordecai, being a Jew, although nobody knows it, knows what the Lord had to say about bowing down to give reverence and honor to men in lieu of God. And that's not what God would allow him to do. So he does not do that. He stands tall and erect when Haman comes by with everybody else 
bowing down and prostrating themselves before this man, including the other Jews. There were lots of Jews still working in that palace complex. They all bowed down too. Everybody did. Mordecai alone stands tall. Doesn't make a big deal about it. He just stands there. In Esther 3 and 2, Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. I want to ask you something. What kind of faith and courage did it take for this man to stand there when everybody else is bowing down to Haman? That's the law of the land. That's what you're supposed to do. But Mordecai doesn't do that. He doesn't make a big deal about it. He just does not consent to bow down and reverence Haman. That's a lot of courage, and that's a lot of faith. Because he knows that Haman is number two in charge. Haman may kill him for this. He doesn't know. Of course, this goes on for a while, and uh, his friends, I mean, he's been there now for years, he knows a lot of people in the palace. He's got friends and countrymen. They're going to him and saying, look, you can't do this, man. This isn't going to end well for you. Things are not going to go good for you if you continue this. And Mordecai, in his effort to explain his actions to his friends and acquaintances there in the palace, reports to them that he is a Jew and that he cannot bow down and reverence any man, but only God. Of course, this is news to everybody. And it didn't take very long before the word gets back to Haman that Mordecai is a Jew, and that's why he will not bow down to you. And that just incenses Haman even more. If he could be more angry and more upset, he is. But, Haman's got a problem. Mordecai's got a good reputation in the palace. Mordecai's the guy that saved the king from assassination. So in Esther 3 and 6, we read that Haman thought it scorned to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He was a little bit concerned about him doing Mordecai in just by himself because uh, of his reputation and his status there in the palace. So, Haman hatched a plot to destroy all the Jews throughout the known world. Wow, that's a pretty ambitious goal, isn't it? What did he do to accomplish this goal? He had to get the king's approval to do this. So he went to the king in Esther 3 and 9 and says, If it please the king, let it be written that they, the Jews, may be destroyed. And I and Mordecai will pay 10,000 talents of silver and bring it to the king's treasury. Think about that for a minute. 10,000 talents of silver. A talent of silver weighs between 80 and 100 pounds. He's going to give 10,000 talents. That means he's going to take 800,000 to a million pounds of silver and deliver it to the king's treasury. How do you move a million pounds of silver? I don't know, but obviously this guy's got it. And he's offering to pay it to get rid of Mordecai. Now, how much does your hate have to be 
that you're willing to pay that kind of money. To put that in dollars and cents terms today, a talent of silver would be worth approximately a million dollars. 10,000 talents of silver would equate to about 10 billion, with a B, 10 billion dollars. Amon's willing to pay 10 billion dollars to kill Mordecai and all the rest of the Jews in, in the world. That's the price. Of course, the king thought that was probably a pretty good deal. $10 billion, just to get rid of some people that really are kind of a problem anyway. So, it's agreed that that's what's going to happen. In Esther 3 and 13, we read, And letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to kill, destroy, and cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Ador, and to take the spoil of them for prey. So, he's come up with a plan. He's purchased the approval of the king to execute it. And now he is sent out to the entire world, this royal edict, that in the middle of the last month of the year, you're to search out all the Jews in your community and kill them. And by the way, you kill them, you get all their stuff. So now he's affected the means to have it happen. Because there's plenty of people that hate the Jews already. Now you're going to let them legally kill them all and take all their stuff? What a deal. Got to happen, right? I mean, there's not going to be anybody that hates Jews that's going to resist that temptation to be involved in that. Of course, Haman still doesn't know. He knows Mordecai's a Jew, but he still doesn't know Esther's a Jew. When Mordecai heard this, his horse was greatly distraught. He put on sackcloth and ashes and went in the midst of the city and crowned with a loud and bitter cry. This is in the fourth chapter of Esther. Mordecai reports what's happening to Hatich, Esther's servant, he ultimately sends a copy of the letter to Esther so she can read it herself and request that Esther go to the king and change this. Well, that's all well and good, except there's a little problem here, too. You see, Persian law requires that if you go to the king's court uninvited, one or two king will either extend his golden scepter to you, at which time you can come forth and make your request, or he won't. If he doesn't, you are then taken out and executed. So Esther's not really anxious to do that. She tells Mordecai, it's been 30 days since I've seen the king. I, I may end up dead over this. Well, Mordecai tells her not to think of herself and not to think that she's going to be spared because once they start killing all the Jews, they're going to eventually find out you're a Jew and you too will die. And he says in the 14th verse, If thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. 
who knows whether thou art come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Another display of faith and courage by this man that really is nobody. He's gained a certain amount of authority and power because he reported an assassination attempt, but prior to that, he was really a nobody. Kind of like me and you. Didn't really have a lot of influence over anybody. When he chose to stand tall and erect by himself, when all the rest of the world was bowing down and reverencing and honoring Haman, there wasn't anybody joined him. In fact, they all told him how crazy he was to do it. That it's not going to end well for him. Now he sees the results of this. Not only is his life threatened, but the entire Jewish people, all of them, have been placed under a death sentence. What do you think is going through his mind? I'm sure he had to think, I never thought it would come to this. I never thought this would be the result of me standing on the word of God. I never dreamed that it would result and all of us being killed. But yet, he didn't back away. He stepped up and told Esther that she needed to step up. And that if she didn't, God would deliver those his people some other way. But she and Mordecai and their house would be destroyed. Esther agreed. She'll do it. She asked for three days of fasting and prayer by all the Jews, and she gets all the people involved in her entourage, her palace, where she's the queen and the most powerful man on the face of the earth. I'm sure she had a staff that probably numbered in the hundreds. And they're all fasting and praying also. At the conclusion of this, Esther gets dressed up to look as nice and as beautiful as she can. And she goes to the court of the king and steps in uninvited. King Caesar and he extends the golden scepter and asks her what her request is. Please tell me what you want. You can have anything you want. Up to half my kingdom. Just tell me what it is. She tells him all she wants is for king and Haman to come to a banquet that she's going to throw in her part of the palace. No problem. They'll do it. And of course Haman, he's now if his head wasn't high enough up in the clouds, now it's way up there because he is going to a banquet the queen is throwing for just the king and Haman. How more could he be honored? So they meet, they have the first banquet, everything goes well, the king asks her again, what can I do, what would you like, anything that you desire is going to be yours, just tell me. She says, well I want you to come to another banquet, you and Haman, I'm going to put on a second banquet, I want you all to come to that. Okay. Well, if Haman's leaving, 
Wouldn't you know it, he passes Mordecai, he sees him again. And although Haman's got the world by the tail, everything's going his way, he says in the 13th verse of chapter 5, Yet all of this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. He goes on and laments to his wife, family, friends about this Mordecai and what an insult he is. They tell him that they've got an idea. Build a gallows. 50 cubits tall. That's 75 feet. Build a gallows 75 feet tall and then go talk to the king, get permission to hang him on the gallows and be done with it. He's a Jew. He's going to die here in a few months anyway along with all the rest of them. So get rid of him that way and then you'll feel better about it. Haman was happy to oblige. He thought that was a great idea. There's a problem arising though. You see that night while Haman's constructing this massive gallows to put Mordecai on, the king can't sleep. So he commands his scribes to bring in the book of the records and chronicles of the empire. And the part they read to the king was about Mordecai saving the king by exposing the assassination plot to kill him. And the king asked, what did we do to honor this man? He said, we didn't do anything. And he said, well, we're going to fix that. So tomorrow, Haman comes in. Haman comes in to ask for Mordecai's head. But before he can do that, the king asked him, what shall be done unto a man whom the king delighteth to honor? This is in Esther 6 and 6. Haman being the meek and humble person he was, obviously thought, it's got to be me. The king wants to honor me as he's honored no one else. So he runs off this whole litany of things you can do to honor this man you want to honor, king. He dress him in your apparel, put him on your steed, have him paraded through the city, announcing it to everybody that this is the man that the king chooses to honor and glorify. And the king says, great idea. Get Mordecai and do all that for him. And you do it. That's probably a little let down to old Haman. He went in there to ask for his head. And instead of getting his head, he gets parading through the city, shouting to everybody that this Mordecai is the man the king has chosen to honor. Needless to say, that did not go so well old Haman. He goes back and reports that to his wife and family and uh, I said, this is not a good omen. This is not a good sign. We may be in trouble here. But Haman gathers himself together and he shows up that night to go to the second banquet. The queen is putting on for the king and Haman. And at the conclusion of this banquet, the king asks her again. What is your request? Anything you want up to half the kingdom is yours. Just tell me what it is. And in 7 and 3, we read about Esther's answer. If I have found favor, let my life be given to me, is my petition. 
and my people at my request. I'm sure this shocked the old king. Then she goes on to say, For if we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed. This has got to be a shock to the king. We are sold, and I and my people will be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. She goes on to tell him, If we'd been sold as bondmen and women, I would have held my tongue. I wouldn't say anything. Although the enemy could not contravail the king's damage, I would accept that. But no, we're to be all, we're to be slaughtered. We're to be killed. Needless to say, the king is not exactly receiving this news with great joy in his heart. He gets kind of upset. And he says unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he? that doth presume in his heart to do something like this. And Esther says, the enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman becomes very afraid before the king and the queen. Esther 7 and verse 7, And the king arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath went into the palace garden. Of course, we know that Haman then stood up to go to the queen and beg for his life. But, of course, he had probably had a little too much to drink already anyway. And when the king returns from the garden, in verse 8, Haman has fallen upon the bed wherein Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in my own house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face and led him away. And the servants told the king, Haman's built this massive gallows over there at his place, 75 foot tall, that he wants to hang, that he wants to hang Mordecai on. The king says, Hang Haman on it, which they did. And that pacified the king's wrath. But in addition to getting rid of Haman, Mordecai is now elevated to Haman's position. He is now the number two man in the kingdom. He's also given Haman's possessions. I assume that means he got the 10,000 talents of silver. So now he is not only a man of great power and authority, but also of great wealth. But that didn't solve the problem for the Jews, because you see there was a law in Persia that once the king had affixed his seal to a order or a directive, that order and directive cannot be changed or altered for any reason by anyone, including the king. So the death sentence on the Jews still stands. Now it's in the third month of the year when all this is taking place and they're not gonna be able to kill all the Jews until the middle of the 12th month. So there's a certain amount of time that's gonna elapse. The king gives Mordecai the authority to address this problem however he sees fit. So Mordecai sends out a post to all the countries 
through all the provinces, all 127 of them, and he tells the Jews that they have the right to defend themselves. They can stand up and fight these people that are going to be trying to destroy them. They don't have to stand there unarmed and just take it. Now they can meet the adversary with arms and defend themselves. And of course, we know that that happened, but something maybe you didn't know in Esther 9 and 3, we read, and all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and officers, officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai had fallen upon them. So not only did the Jews get to defend themselves, now all the king's army and all the king's men are there fighting with them to make sure that they are preserved. And of course, instead of it being a great slaughter of all the Jews throughout the world, it turned out to be a great slaughter of all the people who hated the Jews throughout the world. Once this has all been accomplished, the king comes into Esther the queen and says, okay, we've done it. There's been 500 men here in the palace that were killed. What else can I do for you? And she says, well, king, we'd like to have one more day to finish the job. There's some of these Jew haters that snuck away, they hid out, we weren't able to find them. So give us another day to finish the job. Which he says, you got it. So they spend another day and they take out all of the people in Persia that wanted the Jews dead. Including, of course, the ten sons of Haman and all his family and all the rest of those Amalekites that so hated the Jews and wanted them destroyed. We read in Esther 10 and 3, For Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king Azarus, great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. Now what can we get out of this? What kind of faith did Mordecai have to have? That very first day, Haman's walking through the palace, everybody's prostrating themselves and giving reverence to Haman, and Mordecai just stands there and refuses to do it. That took a lot of faith and courage. I'm sure each one of you have been in a situation where you were exposed to a problem that everybody else seemed to think was okay, where you had to make a decision. Am I going to stand on what I know God wants me to do, or am I going to go along? We all experience that in our life, not to the extent that Mordecai is here, not that we're fixing to be executed if we don't do what the government said to do, at least it hasn't come to that yet, but we all face these kind of trials on a much smaller scale regularly in our lives. When nobody's going to know what we did. We can 
go along, we can stay silent, we can hide out, we can just kind of shrink into the woodwork. We don't have to take a stand for God. Nobody's going to know. Yeah, somebody is going to know. God's going to know. God knows when the devil comes for us and tempts us how we respond. You know, it's easy to respond and do the right thing if you're with a lot of Christians that are going to be, you know, got your back. That's not too hard to do. Not so easy when you're the only one. You're standing out there by yourself and you know that you can go along or just sit quietly or do nothing and nobody's going to know. But you'll know and God will know. That's the difference. You know, like I said, Mordecai is not listed in the faith lineup in Hebrews 11. He's a nobody. Started out as a nobody, didn't end up as a nobody, ended up being the second most powerful man in the world. But that was because God chose to elevate him to that status because of his faith and his courage against all odds to resist ungodly things. I pray that maybe you, if you don't remember anything else from today's lesson, you will think about Mordecai and the fact that he by himself stood alone. Nobody was there to defend him. If he had bowed down, nobody would have noticed. Nobody would have cared. But he would have known. And God would have and when you face those trials and temptations that you think nobody's going to know about, you're going to know about them, and God's going to know about them. So find the courage and the faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's also in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Remember that. When you're challenged, when your faith is put on the line, when you're courage is tested stand strong doesn't mean you have to get out there and start a fight or an argument Mordecai didn't do any of that he just stood there that's all he did he just stood because he was not going to bow down to a man he was only bowing down to God lesson is yours I trust that possibly you have gained a little confidence Hopefully a little courage, or if nothing else, hopefully some affirmation to your position to live the kind of Christian godly life we're intended to live. I've not talked about first principles, but the water's here, it's ready. Or if we can assist you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.